0: This penultimate episode exploring the work of Pink Floyd and its members takes a look at how the 1980s brought about a bitter rift and ultimately defined a new era of the band. I will discuss the final Floyd album to include Roger Waters, a final cut, and talk about how the band parted ways the various solo projects that followed and lastly track the rise of the so-called Gilmore era of Pink Floyd that would take the band into the 1990s and present day. By the early 1980s Pink Floyd had completed an elaborate tour for The Wall and wrapped up work for the theatrical film and the cracks were beginning to make themselves known between Roger Waters and the other members. Of course by this time Rick Wright was no longer in the band after making good on his promise to remain with Pink Floyd up to and including The Wall. Around 1982 Waters was already thinking about the next project and it very much revolved around The Wall and expanding this concept further. Indeed, the working title was Spare Bricks, a companion soundtrack album for Pink Floyd, The Wall, the film, in all but name, really. However, the emergence of the Falklands War in Britain altered tracks for Waters, and he set about writing new material along these lines. Waters was particularly affronted by the then Conservative Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's response to the conflict. For context, the spring of 1982 saw Britain go to war over control of the Falkland Islands. The Falkland Islands are located in the South Atlantic Ocean of the East Coast of South America, and they remain one of Britain's few overseas territories. Considering the island's location, Their sovereignty has long been contested by Argentina, and in 1982, the Argentinian president decided to take control of the Falklands. Following this, Thatcher authorized a military response as British Special Forces, Royal Air Force, and the Navy fought. Ultimately, the conflict lasted only 74 days, but it costs 907 lives. These were 649 Argentinian, 255 British and three Falkland Islanders. To this day, the Falkland Islands remain a British overseas territory and in 2013, a referendum was held aiming to put the sovereignty question to the people of the islands. Reportedly, the turnout was 92% and 99.8% of people voted to remain a British overseas territory. Although, There are many more facts and issues to consider. This gives a brief summary which is relevant when considering how Pink Floyd's album, The Final Cut, was influenced by this conflict. Personally, Roger Waters did not agree with the British government and Thatcher's response, seeing them as being too keen to engage in fatal military conflict. Indeed, in his 2013 book, Pigs Might Fly, the inside story of Pink Floyd, Mark Blake writes in quotes, For Roger Waters, a songwriter informed by the shadow of war on his own life, this latest conflict was yet more grist to the mill. By the time Pink Floyd began work on a follow-up album to The Wall in July 1982, the war in the South Atlantic was foremost in his mind. The futile loss of lives on both sides was one factor, but there was also the belief that the conflict was being manipulated as a potential vote winner in a country puffed up with nationalistic pride. Furthermore, Waters explained to Blake in quotes, The final cut was about how, with the introduction of the welfare state, we felt we were moving forward into something resembling a liberal country, where we would all look after one another. But I'd seen all that chiselled away, and I'd seen a return to an almost Dickensian society under Margaret Thatcher. I felt then, as now, that the British government should have pursued diplomatic avenues rather than teaming in the moment that task force arrived in the South Atlantic. Gilmore called the album, in quotes, very much Roger's baby, and hints towards the criticism since that the final cut is a Waters solo album. However, Gilmore has stated that although he didn't agree with the over of the album, he never wanted to discourage Waters from getting his message across, and Gilmore's main issue was actually with the quality of the music. Blake writes that four songs, Your Possible Pass, One of the Few, The Final Cut, and The Hero's Return, were taken from leftovers off the wall, and Gilmore felt that essentially, if they weren't good enough for that previous album, then they shouldn't be for this current one. However, Waters also attests that Gilmore wasn't exactly contributing any new material, material sorry, himself at the time, and Gilmore does agree that he was, in his own words, guilty at times of being lazy. Waters explains further how he saw it to Mark Blake, in quotes. Dave's attitudes and beliefs were very different from mine, and a lot of niggling developed. But if you want to be in a band and go on making the money, and you want to go on being superstars, you have to have songs. Gilmore didn't like the Final Cut's politics, he didn't like the attacks on Margaret Thatcher, but he needed to compromise because he didn't have any songs of his own, not one. It all got very nasty. For the final cut, Michael Kamen was brought in place of Bob Ezrin as co-producer alongside James Guthrie. Waters would join the two in the production credits. Gilmore was noticeably no absent. In fact, the makeup of positions for the final cut was drastically different for, for Pink Floyd. For example, Kamen played piano. Andy Bowne was on Hammond organ, and Andy Newmark and Roy Cooper stood in for Nick Mason more often than not. Mason's input was indeed more minimal than previously. Waters relegated the responsibility of putting together holophonic sound effects to Mason. Initially, Gilmore and Waters worked together in a similar style of the past, supposedly occupying much of their time playing Donkey Kong between recording but ultimately the tensions rose to a tumultuous temperature. Co-engineer of the album Andy Jackson is quoted by Mark Mark Blake as saying, James, Guthrie and I would literally have one each. I tended to go to Rogers and work with him on the vocals and James would go to Dave's and work on the guitars and we'd occasionally meet up again and swap what we'd done. However, Andy Bone, reiterates to Blake that, in quotes, the difference between Pink Floyd and every other band I've worked with is that they are gentlemen. No outsider would be able to tell there was friction. Pink Floyd are the only band I've encountered who know how to behave properly. Waters described the album's theme as anti-war and exposing the betrayal of fallen British servicemen such as his father who sacrificed their lives for a failed post-war dream. Starting in songs like One of the Few, the album details a veteran war hero's return to civilian life. In the song The Fletcher Memorial Home, Waters showcases his frustration with the world leaders in the West in post war Britain and the US particularly. He feels these leaders should all be housed to a dedicated retirement home, as he calls them, overgrown infants. The inclusion of the name Fletcher is homage to Waters' own father, who was called Eric Fletcher Waters. The titular song, The Final Cut, details a man's depression and loneliness and subsequent psychological decline before he attempts suicide. The next song, Not Now John, is the only one to feature Gilmore singing lead vocals. This song sits in contrast with much of the album because it features a more upbeat and hard rock style. It rallies against general society's ignorance of war, politics and economic problems. The final song, Two Suns in the Sunset, is a reference to the light of a nuclear explosion. Ultimately, the world has hurtled towards a nuclear holocaust as an inevitable outcome of a world obsessed with war. Actually, the album would be accompanied by a short film, including four of the album's main songs. The film was produced and written by Waters and Alex McAvoy, the schoolteacher from The Wall, is featured as the fallen hero character. The final cut, as an album, was released in March 1983 in the UK. The album's cover featured a variety of Second World War service medals, and the sleeve included photographs taken by Waters' brother-in-law, Willie Christie. Despite its retrospective reputation, the final cut did actually reach number one in the UK and number six in the US, but Mark Blake opines that in quotes. Though this was clearly off the back of the wall's popularity rather rather than on the commercial appeal of the material, Indeed, critical reception for the album was mixed, to say the least. Melody Maker labelled it a milestone in the history of awfulness, whereas Rolling Stone wrote at the time that it was Art Rock's crowning masterpiece. For NME, Richard Cook said, in quotes, Like the poor damn Tommies that haunt his mind, Roger Waters' writing has been blown to hell. Water stopped with the wall and the final cut isolates and juggles the identical themes of the elephantine concept with no fresh momentum to drive them. There was no tour or significant promotional campaign alongside the album's release, perhaps a clue to the band's inevitable split. Nevertheless, the final cut sold well and it was certified double platinum by the RIAA in 1997. The song, Not Now John, also gave Pink Floyd a lead single from the album, and it was also the only song, as already mentioned, to feature Gilmore singing lead vocals. The song did make the UK top 30, but did not have any significant impact in the US. Reviews, in hindsight, have been as equally mixed. In Musical Milestone's Pink Floyd 50th Anniversary Edition from 2016, Jeff Hudson awards the album 3 out of 5 stars. Hudson writes in quotes, Ultimately, like the wall, but more so, the final cut is one to be filed under experience as much as album. Luckily for everyone, it succeeds at both. Hudson goes on to say that the final cut is an angry record that is more than just an anti-war rant and rather, in quotes, is an expose of the hypocrisy at the heart of a government. The tracks highlighted at standouts by Hudson are the Fletcher Memorial Home, praising both Gilmore's guitar solo and Waters' lyrics, and Not Now John. Online music magazine The Quietus published a 30-year anniversary review of the final cut in 2017 by Reverend Rachel Mann. Mann recognises that an issue with the album may be its time-specific concept, but Mann also maintains, in quotes, For flawed though it is, the final cut remains a tremendous album. She goes on to say, in quotes, And, if it does occasionally creak under its own pretensions, the final cut's saving grace is Water's compassion. She also cites the song The Gunner's Dream as the album's centrepiece, and she praises both Water's voice and lyrics on the record. Mann also argues that the final cut is an excellent testament to English sentiment around the time of the 80s under Thatcher's rule and the Cold War. Indeed, Mann concludes, in quotes, The early 1980s represented a time of heightened fear about nuclear war and hawkish politics not seen since 1962. Unsurprisingly, this generated a considerable amount of art and cultural product. TV shows like Threads, The Day After and A Magnificent Edge of Darkness dealt with the re-energised Cold War and nuclear paranoia. Perhaps the final cut is one species of musical Cold War drama and therefore should be treated merely as historical document. Go back and listen. It belongs rather with the bonkers meditations of Edge of Darkness than the crass emotionalism of the day after, and it still has something fresh to say. Another online magazine, Now Spinning, published a classic album review for the final cut in September 2022. Frode Sing Sass reflects on the album Now in Hindsight. When he originally bought the album in 1983, he struggled to get through it. He writes, in quotes, I remember so well how I struggled my way through 11 tracks which all moved at a snail's pace with Roger Waters whining about his dad, Thatcher and various war issues before David Gilmour finally got a chance at at Not Now John. In concluding his review, Sing Sass Singast, I'm sorry, maintains that despite trying time and time again, he can't get on board with the album. This is mainly because he feels the album, as he already said, is far too whiny in tone and there is generally no real melody anywhere, nor any guitar solo or musical theme. Looking at social media, forums and fan sites, there is varied thought on the album. Some call it their favourite, most listened to and underrated. Indeed, they highlight the album's lyrical content, atmosphere and for it being different. One person says that the album has almost suffered by proxy of the band's publicised issues during recording and release. Some also consider it part of trilogy of similar themes by Waters, as seen in The Wall, the final cut, and then his own solo album, Amused to Death. Some have said it has no melody. It's boring, pretentious, and too political. It's dated, terrible, a collection of songs that couldn't make it onto the wall, and it should not be considered among Pink Floyd's discovery. Reflecting on the final cut and the finality of the Roger Waters led era of Pink Floyd, Mark Blake writes that the album did not, did still show, sorry, the quality of the band's music even when they were at one of their lowest moments. Blake says, in quotes, However disliked, it may now be among some of their audience and the band themselves. Even Waters would later admit that not everything can be a masterpiece. The final cut could never find Pink Floyd accused of complacency. The musical offerings from many of their 60s and 70s contemporaries at the time prove how difficult some of their peers found it to stay relevant in the new decade. In the face of uncertainty over Pink Floyd's future, the members of the band kept themselves relatively busy on other projects. For his part, David Gilmour supported the work of other artists like Kate Bush, television personalities, Brian Ferry and the Dream Academy throughout the 1980s. After the release of the final cut, Gilmour was also putting together his second solo album called About Face, which was released in March 1984. In an interview with Record Collector from 2003, Gilmore reflected on About Face and his wider solo career by saying, We knew Roger wasn't going to be part of anything we did, but before he'd officially left, he had us trapped in limbo. I was putting my toe in the water. Then he left and I was encumbered and carried on doing Pink Floyd. There didn't seem to be any reason to do a solo project. Bob Ezrin was recruited to co-produce About Face and Ezrin tells biographer Mark Blake that, in quotes, I think David felt liberated doing something outside of Pink Floyd and he had a good time making the record. Gilmore brought on a number of musicians to help contribute to the songs on About Face including Jeff Porcaro, John Lord, Roy Harper, Michael Kamen and Steve Winwood. Pete Townsend from The Who also helped Gilmore with the lyrics of two tracks Love on the Air and All Lovers Are Deranged. In a 1992 interview for Musician magazine, Gilmore tells journalist Rezin- Reznikoff, in quotes, I think Pete Townsend feels some restrictions on what he would like to do with The Who, as I guess we all feel restrictions within everything we attempt to do just because of the types of personalities and role you've created for yourself. I know he's felt uncomfortable about certain things, like he could express in solo stuff, things he could express in solo stuff. For me, the restriction was the scale of what Pink Floyd had become more than anything. It's nice to get out and do something on a slightly different scale, go out and do theatres, which is not really a possibility with Pink Floyd until we get a lot less popular. In a move away from Pink Floyd's infamous anonymity, David Gilmore is prominently placed on the album's cover, photographed in a leather jacket. Not only that, but Gilmore also challenged Floydian orthodoxy by expressing his own personal emotions too such as his anger at the shooting of John Lennon in the song Murder, the, fru- the frustration of the tensions between him and Roger Waters in You Know i Right, and the existence of cruise missiles in Britain in the song Cruise. Critical reception of the album was favourable, and it reached number 21 on the UK album charts. In 1995, About Face was certified gold by the RIAA. In a review from 2014 available on the site Classic Rock Review, Jeremiah Cook considers the album underrated. If one is comparing the solo work of Waters and Gilmore, Cook is of the opinion that Gilmore wins out because he focuses on the music. Indeed, Cook writes in quotes, The album is filled with great and diverse music, and in contrast to the recent Waters-dominated Pink Floyd era, it is not concerned with creating giant lyrical operas, just a solid collection of songs. Change is consistent throughout as each song goes in unique directions that are unexpected and pleasing to the ear. Gilmore explores sounds that he probably could not explore within the confines of Pink Floyd. The lyrics are soaked with subtle references to the Waters feud, and many of the songs reflect the conflict. Quoted in Mark Blake's book, Gilmore says of the album, I thought too much about the album. I tried too hard to get away from Pink Floyd. It was very rocky and I think in some ways I was being less true to myself than I was on my first solo record. Although Gilmore did complete a small-scale tour for the album, this time filling theatres rather than stadiums, and the setlist included only two Pink Floyd singles, Given that Gilmore has always been preoccupied with just playing the music, Blake writes in quotes, on stage without the distraction of flying pigs, a cardboard brick wall, or a scowling Roger Waters, Gilmore seemed to relish just playing and singing. The tour was hardly a financial or ticket success, but he and Waters both took their solo ventures across the pond to play US dates. Indeed, as Gilmore wrapped up his own tour, Waters was midway through his own. Around six weeks after the release of About Face, Roger Waters released his debut solo album, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking, at the end of April 1984. The album was co-produced by Michael Kamen alongside Waters. In typical Waters fashion, this album is based around a thematic concept, namely a man's thoughts and dreams in the midst of a midlife crisis. The album, too, is told in real time, occurring at 4.30am in the morning and finishing at 12 minutes past 5 in the same morning. Therefore, each track title is a timestamp. In these 42 minutes, the protagonist ponders the merits of monogamy, picks up a hitchhiker, has sex with said hitchhiker, is attacked at night point, before reaching some clarity alone about the human condition. According to a 1984 interview of Waters for The Source radio show, the album was a concept left over from 1977 when he wrote the outline for both this and The Wall. Describing the pros and cons of hitchhiking, Mark Blake writes in quotes, Waters' rather unique vocal style, plenty of madman shrieks and Dylan-ish whining was perfect for a lot of the material. His lyrics, too, were darkly witty and sometimes wonderfully politically incorrect. This was Waters rummaging around in another corner of his psyche, exploring the sexual neurosis of a post-war middle-class Englishman. Adhering to Roger's customary love of a happy ending, the hero finally wakes up in his own bed, overjoyed to discover his wife lying beside him. While Gilmore was having help from one famed rocker, Townsend, Waters was collaborating with another, Eric Clapton. This debut album of Waters had a definite sound of blues rock to it, and as Blake asserts, the style suited Clapton and made sense then that he would work with Waters to record and perform these tracks. Nevertheless, Blake is not all positive about the album, as he says. The problem with the pros and cons is that it suffocates some interesting ideas with too many lyrics, and there are simply not enough tunes. Those tunes, scant as they are, also used once too often. When the album was released, it reached number 13 in the UK album charts, and eventually, in 1995, it would be certified gold by the RIAA. Kurt Lauder from Rolling Stone called it strangely static and faintly hideous and Melody Maker was also lukewarm, but it felt it showcased Waters' potential to follow up with a much better second solo album. A review from the site Classic Rock Review from two thousand and fourteen cites the second album, oh sorry, um, the second half sorry of the album as far better than the first, and it highlights the track four fifty a.m. Go Fishing as a standout. Secondly, the reviewer writes in quotes, The album's closing sequence begins with a soft ballad, 5.06am, Every Stranger's Eyes. Clapton's guitar and Cayman's piano notes are in perfect sync after the song proper tells a story of sympathy in the face of turmoil. Starting as simple acoustic ballad by Waters, this song becomes Clapton's finest track on the album. 5.11am, The Moment of Clarity, is also a slow acoustic folk waltz, which utilises the opening, predominant theme to bookmark the album at its close. Given the narrative and storyline running through the album, there had been a plan to make a potential film of pros and cons of hitchhiking, but this did not come to full fruition. But also to coincide with the promotion of the album, Waters embarked on a previously mentioned tour, and for this, Eric Clapton joined Waters and his band, including drummer Andy Newmark, Michael Kamen, Chris Staunton, and guitarist Tim Renwick. The tour kicked off in Stockholm in June of 1984. Once again, matching Waters' signature style, the show projected new Gerald Scarf animations in a film directed by Nicholas Rogue. However, Waters, like Gilmore, suffered from poorer ticket sales and as a result he cancelled a number of dates. Additionally, Waters too included some Pink Floyd songs into the set list. Reportedly, the tour at times was was a difficult experience, particularly because of Waters' moods. Mark Blake writes that Waters found himself and the music overshadowed by the fame of having Eric Clapton on stage. For example, during a performance in Connecticut, the audience got up and waved their cigarette lighters for Clapton's solo only. Tim Renwick tells Blake, in quotes, And then, as soon as Eric finished, the lighters would go off and everyone would sit down. And this very much annoyed Roger. He thought people were making too much noise and not paying enough attention to the lyrics. In Hartford, we came to the end of the first half, and Roger just threw down his bass on the floor of the stage. It was still plugged in, so there was this dreadful cacophony. Stuck his arm in the air and shouted, The great Eric Clapton, and stormed off. However, Waters did apologise to Clapton backstage, and he also apologised to the audience later on in the show. Clapton, however, left the show after a final night in Quebec, with Staunton and Renwick also going. Waters resumed another tour of the US in early 1985. In the background of this, another key member of Pink Floyd was making motions back to music. Richard Wright was putting the feelers out by 1983 that he wanted to collaborate on new material. British songwriter and singer and frontman of a group called Fashion, Dave D. Harris, would attend an invite for a jamming session at Wright's House. Harris recalls to Mark Blake in quotes, He wanted a very electronic sound, which is why I think he wanted to work with me. He had a solo deal with Harvest and we agreed to split it. However, Harris tells how he was pretty much left to put together his music alone, with Wright often being preoccupied with personal issues and the fallout from his departure of Pink Floyd. The duo did create and release an album called Identity under the name Z. Identity was released in the UK and Europe, not in the US, in March 1984. It was a rather understated affair, either met with ambivalence or negativity. The album has a very clear synth-pop sound reminiscent of the decade in which it was made. Harris was responsible for writing all the lyrics and the music was composed by both Wright and Harris together. Mark Blake quotes Wright as describing Z as, in quotes, a disaster, an experimental mistake, but it was made at a time in my life when I was lost. Whereas Harris responds also quoted by Blake saying, It always saddens me when Rick says it was a mistake because he never said that to me at the time. Nick Mason too, in August 1985, released his own second solo album called Profiles, for which he collaborated with former 10cc guitarist Rick Fenn. Again, Mark Blake writes of this project in quotes, Most of Profiles was a dummy run for the film and TV commercial music. Mason and Fenn would dabble in with the formation of their company, Bamboo Music. However, it did feature a guest appearance from David Gilmour singing lead vocals for the track, Lie for a Lie. This would mark the first recording of two Floyd members since the final cut. Meanwhile, Pink Floyd fans were generally just eager for the band to reform. The future of Pink Floyd's existence was on the mind of not only the fans. Roger Waters sought to negotiate this very fact with the fans' manager Steve O'Rourke, who then in turn informed David Gilmour and Nick Mason. It would appear that Waters was keen to rid Pink Floyd of O'Rourke's management, but to do so he would require the legal agreement of Gilmour and Mason, who did not give their consent. Waters amped up his agenda when, in late 1985, he approached the High Court to curtail the use, the future use, sorry, of the name Pink Floyd. Gilmore thought this was unfair because it was not a decision Waters could solely make. Mark Blake quotes Gilmore explaining Waters didn't believe it was possible. Roger said, You'll never get it together to make a record. And I said, We will make a record. And he said, well, I'm not leaving. I'll just sit at the back of the studio and criticise. By the end of 1985, Waters had requested in writing that EMI and Columbia release him from any contract he is in with them as a member of Pink Floyd. Waters explained later to Uncut magazine that they forced me to resign from the band because if I hadn't, the financial repercussions would have wiped me out completely. Waters, once free from his contract with work, employed manager Peter Rudge. As a solo musician, Waters' first project was producing a soundtrack for the animated film When the Wind Blows, based on the 1982 graphic novel by Raymond Briggs. I suppose the subject matter was reminiscent of Waters' own work and interests because the story revolved around an elderly couple preparing, and coping with the fallout of a nuclear attack by the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Waters was now backed up by a group he called the Bleeding Heart Band and for the soundtrack album, Claire Torrey from Dark Side of the Moon fame joined. Torrey tells Mark Blake how she was particularly fond of Waters' lyrical work here, particularly the song Towers of Faith. Both the movie and the album was released in late 19. 19- 86 to little fanfare, but Waters was undeterred and set about working on his next project soon after. In early 1986, Waters approached Bob Ezrin and discussed the possibility of working with him for his next album. Ezrin was living in the US at the time and Waters was in England, so the two had to come up with a plan on where and how to record the album. Initially agreeing to relocate short-term, Ezrin's family changed course and Ezrin had to call Peter Rudge, Waters' manager, and let him know. Waters was less than pleased, let's just say. Shortly after this, Gilmore reached out to Ezrin with a request to demo potential material for a new Pink Floyd album. This would mark the beginning of a new David Gilmore-led era of Pink Floyd. Alongside other collaborators, Gilmore was joined by Mason and Rick Wright for the new album. However, Wright's level of involvement was subject to legal boundaries because a clause in his agreement when leaving the band meant he was prohibited from joining, prohibited, sorry, from joining again as a full credited member. Wright's contribution was indeed limited. About this point in the Pink Floyd timeline, Mark Blake writes, Here on in, the precise circumstances surrounding the making of the album become blurred and contradictory depending on who is telling the story and when they were spoken to. What is clear, however, is that work was beginning on two separate trajectories, one with Pink Floyd recording a new group album and the other with Waters on another solo album. For the former, sessions were held mostly on Gilmore's new studio located on his houseboat named Astoria, sitting on the River Thames in London. Ezrin would serve as co-producer with Gilmore. Nick Mason was on drums, but there were additional support from the likes of John Cairn on keyboards, Bill Payne pay- playing the Hammond organ, and Ezrin himself on bass guitar, among others. However, Gilmore has been said to have been unhappy with the input from both his old bandmates, Wright and Mason. Mason acknowledged in his own 2004 book that he hadn't played in years and needed time to adjust. Whereas in Wright's case, Bob Ezrin tells Mark Blake, in quotes, Roger worked on everybody's confidence. In Rick's case, it destroyed him. With Nick, it had been a matter of him being marginalised on the final cut. He hadn't been practising and he just wasn't sounding like himself. Another problem, though, in the absence of Roger Waters was the need for a lyricist. After looking around and trying out different options, Gilmore took on board singer-songwriter Anthony Moore, and Moore subsequently wrote the majority of three songs for the album, these being On the Turning Away, Dogs of War and Learning to Fly. Gilmore's influence at the helm of Pink Floyd now was clearly demonstrated in how this new album moved away from a concept and more towards a collection of songs loosely connected by a theme. Throughout the recording, the band were in the middle of a continuing legal dispute with Waters. There were challenges made by O'Rourke against Waters and back again from Waters over the use of the Pink Floyd brand, and, to make matters worse, because Waters was still a shareholder of Pink Floyd music, the band had to have every decision discussed and agreed upon with him. Perhaps an example of the bitterness between Waters and Pink Floyd is his reaction to the eventual name of the new Pink Floyd album. According to Mark Blake, the band had struggled to come up with a suitable name, And he writes, in quotes, Acutely aware that any title could be misconstrued as relating to the band's situation or leave them open to mockery from Waters, they rejected three possibles. In favour of a momentary lapse of reason, a phrase lifted from the lyrics to one slip. In the end, Waters would still make hay, calling it a lapse of reason indeed. A Momentary Lapse of Reason was released in mid-1987 and it reached number three in both the UK and the US. For the cover art, the band brought back Storm Thorgerson, who took his inspiration from a lyric in one of the album's tracks, Yet Another Movie, recalling a vision of an empty bed. On Thorgerson's direction, they got the final cover image by transporting hundreds of empty beds onto a beach actually in North Devon. Breaking with tradition though, the album's inside sleeve featured an image of David Gilmour and Nick Mason, clearly no longer a faceless group. The album would be released with three singles, Learning to Fly, On the Turning Away and One Slip. Learning to Fly was really inspired by Gilmour taking flying lessons. But others have interpreted the song as a nod towards the new Pink Floyd lineup. In a 20th anniversary special interview in 1992, Gilmore said, We were, as Pink Floyd, learning to fly again. It did relatively well in the US rock charts but failed to chart in the UK. However, the song's music video, directed by Storm Ferguson, earned the band its only MTV Video Music Award for Best Concept Video in 1988. The video depicted the band performing, interspersed with footage of an Indigenous man working in a field and jumping off a cliff edge before soaring across the air as a Red Hawk eagle. On the Turning Away had been described as something of a protest song, with lyrics about issues of oppression and ignorance towards those most disadvantaged. The song is made up of predominantly only five chords. Reviews at the time, for a momentary lapse of reason, were generally negative to favourable. Q Magazine called it Gilmore's album to much the same degree that the four before were Waters, regarding it as a release of the guitarist repressed talent, and Sounds Magazine wrote that the album went in quotes. Back over the wall to where diamonds are crazy, moons have dark sides, and mothers have atom hearts. In musical Milestone's Pink Floyd 50th Anniversary Edition, they provide an album-by-album history of the band published in 2016. Henry Yates writes a review of A Momentary Lapse of Reason. He gives it 3 out of 5 stars. Yates goes on to write in quotes, In the absence of a coherent concept, he delivers too many dreamy off-cuts from a proposed third solo album, many of which seem to exist purely as a canvas for his admittedly astonishing stratocaster work. At points, as in the meandering six-minute instrumental terminal Frost, you wish there was a creative rival to drag his safer material into choppier waters. However, Yeats does praise the track On the Turning Away, saying, Gilmer has perhaps never sung quite so tenderly as on the almost a cappella intro and as a sadly strummed acoustic guitar prepare the ground for a soul-in-fingers solo. In another later review, available on the site Classic Rock Review from 2012, the reviewer credits the album with, in quotes, representing a definite transition to a new phase in the band's long history. The reviewer goes on to say, in quotes, There is no doubt that part of the Plink Floydisation of the album was to nod back to previous song names, themes and structures. This is evident in the song titles A New Machine. A song, Welcome to the Machine, appeared on 1975's Wish You Were Here, and Dogs of War, which is a quasi-sequel to the Roger Waters animals track, Dogs. Co-written by Anthony Moore, Dogs of War suggests the silent hand behind all war is money, describing political mercenaries in particular. In this review, they are most favourable to Learning to Fly, writing that it, in quotes, has the absolute perfect mechanical sound, built to perfection during the verse rhythm by Ezrin who co-wrote the song along with Gilmore, Muir and John Cairn. In a 2021 review for Far Out magazine, Aaron Starkey is less than impressed with the album, citing it as their lowest ebb and a mixed bag of an album. Starkey highlights the tracks A New Machine, On the Turning Away and Signs of Life, but ultimately though, Starkey says, it doesn't sound like a Floyd record, but, in quotes, as a result of everything that was happening around it, as a fan, you can give the band this wobble as they couldn't go on their classic album, they they couldn't go on their classic album creating Streak Tour forever. Social media opinions highlight the track Sorrow as underrated, and they also cite appreciating David Gilmour more and saying that if you really do listen to Pink Floyd for David Gilmour, then you will like the album. They say that because of this, it is a breath of fresh air. And it is also liked a lot by those who actually saw the live tour. People who don't like it say so because it's not a concept album. It's too 80s or pop sounding. It has no input from Waters, no real artistic direction, weak lyrics and it sounds like a bunch of musicians trying to make a Floyd sounding album and therefore sounds generic. Pink Floyd would take a momentary lapse of reason on tour and they managed to sell out tickets for their initial shows in Canada, leading to more promoters to endorse the shows. For the tour, John Cairn would play alongside Rick Wright and Greg. Guy Pratt came on board as bassist. Lastly, Nick Mason-Likwright would play alongside another musician who was Gary Wallace. Saxophonist Scott Page was also included and it proved a significant challenge to Gilmore to orchestrate so many musicians. Eventually, Bob Ezrin would help with this during rehearsals. The stage set was encased in a steel framework which spanned the width of the stage and reached a height of about eighty feet and included lighting, dry ice, trapdoors, and lighting pods so reminiscent of robots they were nicknamed Floyd droids, writes Mark Blake. Additionally, a screen projected older images from Storm Thorgerson's designs as well as including older Floyd icons like the flying pig balloon something that would come to symbolise the ongoing legal dispute with Roger Waters. Indeed, Waters made a copyright challenge to the sum of over $35,000 for this. The rift, though, between Waters and his former bandmates made itself known in other ways during the tour. Gilmore told Q magazine in an interview that, in quotes, there would be people who would make their feelings known about Roger not being there just by shouting very loudly during moments when the rest of the audience was being very quiet. But then, there were also fans in the audience wearing t-shirts bearing a directly opposite sentiment. As for Waters, he regarded a momentary lapse of reason with despair. He is quoted as telling writer David Frick, I think it's very facile, but a quite clever forgery. The songs are poor in general, the lyrics I can't quite believe. Gilmore's lyrics are very third-rate. Rick Wright would later concede to these criticisms, adding that he feels the album was more a Gilmore solo project. And Gilmore tells Mark Blake, in quotes, I didn't think it was the best Pink Floyd album ever made, but I gave it the best damn shot I could. As this album was being released, however, Waters had already released his own second solo album months prior in June 1987 called Radio KAOS. As expected with Waters, Radio KAOS is a concept album, this time based around the story of a disabled boy named Billy with telepathy. Billy's carer and twin brother is imprisoned during the coal miner strike and as a result Billy is moved to his uncles in the US. His telepathic powers allow him to hack computer systems and he hacks into a military satellite and he manufactures a fake belief in society that ballistic missiles will hit the world's major cities. In the end, though, Billy realises the pointlessness of war and concedes that family and harmony are more important. However, Mark Blake quotes Waters as reflecting, I accepted halfway through the record that as a narrative form, the album was doomed to failure. The part where Billy pretends he's just started the third world war, I now find faintly embarrassing. The album was co-produced by Waters with Nick Griffiths and Ian Ritchie, but ultimately it seems that Waters was disheartened by the final product. The album, when released, was not overly successful commercially and in the charts. Rolling Stones praised the album for being Waters' most listenable work since The Wall, and in a later review for All Music, Mike DeGange noted the album as being distinct for Waters' ability to centre the music as opposed to the narrative which he normally does. Waters 2 took the album on tour beginning August 1987, and it featured staples of a Waters show. The walls designers Jonathan Park and Mark Fisher were both on board to provide props, animation, projections and quadraphonic sound and it also featured a medley of Pink Floyd songs including Have a Cigar and Mother. Eventually the legal dispute between Waters and Pink Floyd would come to a close in December 1987. Waters was released, from any arrangements with Steve O'Rourke, and allowed Gilmore and Mason to use the Pink Floyd name in, per- in perpetuity. Waters would also man- maintain control over other material, most notably the wall. But the stress of the whole situation likely took its toll on both Waters and Gilmore. The latter half of the tour, for a, moment- a momentary lapse of reason, saw Gilmore, Indulge in excessive behaviour. Gilmore explains it best by saying to Mark Blake, I got carried away with the cocaine lifestyle. I thought the coke made me more loquacious, but the reality was far more awful. However, the experience of a momentary lapse of reason at least boosted the confidence of Wright and Mason and strengthened the bond with Gilmore and Pink Floyd as a band. Their next album would be released in the 1990s. And so, that is the end of this episode looking on the most tumultuous decade of Pink Floyd. The next and last episode of the season will cover the band's career in the 90s and also reflect on where they are today. This podcast series was written and recorded by Megan and hosted on Anchor. Music was taken from Antolf Lazov on Pixabay.